This is the Parenting for Faith podcast from the Bible Reading Fellowship. Visit parentingforfaith.org for free online videos and resources and an eight-session course all about Parenting for Faith. You can also sign up for news, subscribe to this podcast, and find out about events and training in your area. Welcome to the Parenting for Faith podcast. My name's Anna Hawkin and I'm part of the team here at Parenting for Faith. This is episode four of season two, Tweens and Teens. So this is for all you parents and carers of teenagers or 10, 11, 12 year olds, anyone heading in that direction. So if that's not you, we'd ask you to do the same thing uh, we've been saying the whole season. Please send this to a friend. You must know someone with a teenager or someone who's going to have a teenager soon. That really helps us out. Hopefully it blesses and encourages them as well. Or if you don't know anyone with a teenager, that's not your life stage and you don't know anyone there, um, you can still help us out by rating, reviewing and subscribing to the podcast if you've enjoyed them in the past. And do scroll back. We've got over 130 episodes. So if you don't have a teenager, we've still got plenty for you. But if you do have a teenager, this is going to be a teeny tiny snippet of all the resources that we've got for teens. So if you want to find out more, you can go to our website to parentingforfaith.org forward slash topics forward slash teenagers. And you will see masses and masses of videos and podcast segments and written stuff. Um, You are not alone. We really want to journey with you in this. Um, There will be a Parenting for Faith for Teens book coming out. Uh, and we're also going to be doing the Parenting for Faith for Teens course again, not until 2023, because we need some time to make it all shiny and exciting. But just so you know, that is on the horizon. So who are we going to hear from today? Well, we're going to start off by hearing from Rachel Turner, um, the founder of Parenting for Faith. She's going to be sharing um, a question about, well, an answer to a question about how to equip teens to make good decisions. Then we're going to be hearing from Ali Campbell, who's a youth and children's ministry consultant. And he's just going to share a few thoughts um, around kind of the transition from primary school to secondary school and how we as parents can be present to our children, how we can be available to them. The next voice you're going to hear will be uh, Crystal Chang, who's the executive director of student strategy at Orange. Um, So she's in Atlanta in the States and uh, she worked as a high school teacher and a student ministry leader. And she's written a book all about um, helping teenage girls to have good conversations and how to open them up. And I really wanted to ask her about how to talk to teenagers about tough topics and how to be available if they want to talk about things that are a bit more difficult. And then finally, you're going to hear from Josh Lees. Josh is a curate. He's got years of experience in youth ministry. And we asked him what to do if your teenager doesn't want to go to church. And as always, there'll be a question to ask your kid to start an interesting conversation. So let's hand over to Rachel for that first question. How do you help a teen stick to their, not our principles, when in difficult situations, parties without being a helicopter parent? Right. Several things. If you have a kid who is, they're like in difficult situations, like, okay, uh, they're getting older and they're going to be places where there are all sorts of things. Um, one thing is, uh, so I know many parents who do different things, um, but you're saying, I want you to be a powerful person always. You are responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your thoughts, no matter what anybody else is doing. There could be a thousand crazy people around you doing all sorts of irresponsible things, and I expect you to be responsible for yourself. Even if you're in a mob, you're responsible for you. And so uh, there are parents I know who are like, proof to me 
why I would be a genius to let you go to this party. Like, talk to me about how you're going to stick to who you want to be in that. So tell me who you want to be at this party. Tell me how you're going to make sure you stick to that so that I know you got a plan. And uh, and then kids, <laughs> I've seen kids have like board charts, you know, like on, on, on like a flip chart being like, right, I, I am called to, you know, I've, I've decided I will not drink. I will, um, you know, not make sure I'm the house mom responsible for everybody else, but I will be responsible for me. Uh, and I will make sure that I leave if I feel like it gets, you know, and, uh, and so therefore if somebody offers me a drink, then my answers are these things. And so you sort of prove to your parent why you are wise. Um, I know some parents who are like, alcohol scares me and we have thing in our family about alcohol so I want you to tell me the answer to this quiz and they come up with like alcohol quizzes prove to me that you know enough that I can trust you build my trust in you sticking to what you've decided tell me what you've decided and build my trust and so rather than saying these are my rules you obey them it's saying you know my values you know you have to take care of my heart so that I know that you are going to be the Eunice of you and therefore, if you're struggling with that, and if you're in scenarios with that, or if you um, found yourself compromising yourself, then I'm not okay with that. And I'm going to help you make that not happen anymore. So this restriction can come and we may, you know, if you can't maintain yourself with that, then we'll shrink it back a little bit so you can grow in confidence to do it well, because it's important to me that you, um, that you always feel strong and powerful in control of what's happening. And uh, I need to walk that with you. And so it's sort of helping them articulate what their values are and and still holding them to it. It's okay to say, these are my standards and I hold you to it. Um, but it's coming up with something that you both agree with. I remember everyone has, I've heard so many different ones. My, my mom used to say I had, I had to call her every half hour with a location and permission and you know, so that she could hear my voice and know what was happening. And so if everyone has their own stories of how their parent did it, but, um, but having those conversations. And the other thing I would really suggest, particularly with teenagers, is to be available when they're available. So when they come home from those parties, when they come home from those dis difficult situations, um, being available to have those conversations and kind of making that a part of life as you come home and you tell me about your evening and how was it and what was going on and, and you know, what was the most frustrating part and stuff so that you, you're not saying be accountable for what you did, but being available in the midst of those emotions and situations so that you can debrief with them, even if it's 10 minutes, you know, a half hour, um, being available when they come home so that you're not trying to catch up four days later on a difficult situation that you knew was going to happen, but you're, you're with them. It's that third, walking alongside. Commit to walking alongside them because you want what's best for them and you're there to encourage them in that. And now we're going to hear from Ali Campbell. He was reflecting on teenagers and that kind of transition from primary to secondary school. And he just shares a few thoughts from what he's learned from his experience and some questions to ask ourselves. I love this verse next um, It's in chapter 33 and it's just this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And it's in the context of Moses having a chat with the Lord in the tent of meeting is at this point of transition the people have rejected the lord's commands um you know god's saying i'm not having it um there are stiff-necked people and all that stuff moses petitions on their behalf and there's this moment coming a moment of incredibleness that's not arrived yet in the passage but the glory of the lord is about to pass by but in the midst of this moses knows he has a job to do 
He's making sure he isn't doing it alone. And then we have this verse, you know, when he's basically saying, how am I going to manage all of this? God says to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's about presence. Yes, there is loads to do, lots of activity, stuff that has to happen. Um, yes, God's people have stuffed it up good and proper, worshipping an idol they made while Moses was up the mountain the first time. But the point is this. We need God's presence. We need to know he's with us for what is to come. We need to find rest in that place with him. No rest in the midst of all the thrashing around with diaries and making stuff happen for our kids and buying new uniforms and getting used to their greater autonomy and celebrating what has been. But as they grow up, mourning, it's lost too. But in all of this, it's presence over activity that will get us through. Our awareness of God's presence, but also how we create that space and that presence for our kids. Now, when my children were younger, time spent was about activity. What are we going to do? When are we going to do it? How long will it take to get there? Life was punctuated by bouts of activity um, that would engage, thrill, and hopefully exhaust our children so that we could all sleep at night. But all of that was geared around activity. As they get older, while our children continue to enjoy activity, they crave presence, just knowing that we are there. We are with them on this. Transition brings change, but while we all get older and slower, our presence remains. It is a myth to believe that as our children get older, they need us less. We have found the opposite to be true. Our children need our presence and our words of encouragement. Our you've got this words of support. So question, how is your presence before your kids? How present are you to your children? It's about being there and showing up and not checking out, but being available and that they know that you're available. I work from home uh, and when the kids are around, I try and make sure of an open door. Yes, I might still be working, but I don't ever want them to think I'm not present. I got to spend some time with Crystal Chang and I started by asking her, how can we open up teens? How can we start good conversations with them about tough topics? or just make ourselves available so that they can come and talk to us about the things that are on their minds. I've spent a lot of time working with teenage girls in the church context, but I was also a high school teacher here in the States for almost 10 years. Um, and during that time, what I learned is most teenagers are going to go through something difficult. It's not because they're bad or they're rebellious. It's because they're teenagers. Um, and statistically, what we find to be true is that one out of four teenage girls are going to experience some sort of sexual assault. Um, one out of 10 are going to identify as something other than heterosexual. One out of uh, five are going to consider suicide. One out of nine will attempt suicide. That goes up by 300% if they're one of the kids struggling with same-sex attraction. And so... When we think about those numbers, one in five, one in ten, one in seven, if we spend time with ten teenagers, there's a, there's a chance that each of those is true about one of our kids. Um, and if you're parenting a teenager, there, there is the possibility that one of those things may be true about your kid. Um, and so the question is, what do we do in those really difficult conversations? If a teenager gets the courage to tell us something really scary or really vulnerable, what, what is our best response? And so I would say, whether I'm talking to a parent or a volunteer or an auntie or a mentor, that the real bullseye on the target for us is to 
to indicate that we are a safe place first. Because the first question a teenager is asking, if they get the courage to tell us something difficult, is, am I safe? And usually they determine whether or not they're safe, not by the words we're saying, but by the look on our face. They can see it in our eyes, whether we're surprised, whether we're disappointed, whether we're angry. And so as the adults in their lives, we almost have to practice our facial reactions. So before we ever have a difficult conversation, almost run, uh, run exercises to practice with ourselves. What if they told me this? What if they said they're self-harming? What if they said they're struggling with suicidal thoughts? How would my face respond? And then what words would I say? What words do I want to make sure that I don't say? And what words do I want to make sure that I do say? Because in those moments, of course, we're humans. And our reaction is to have a, a cortisol fight or flight response. And our bodies are reacting in ways that we can't really control if we haven't practiced for those moments. And so my advice to parents is to assume that some of these things may happen. And if they do, practice what your response is so that your child knows you're a safe place and that they will bring you difficult conversations in the future instead of taking them somewhere else. The second piece of advice I would give is this, is to think of those conversations in two parts. The first would be the, what I would call an emergency room conversation. That's your very first conversation with a kid. And you know, if you were to go to the hospital with a gunshot wound and you were in the emergency room, that they would treat the most critical, the most critical thing in that moment. They would not talk to you about your diet. They would not talk to you about your caffeine consumption. They probably wouldn't talk to you about your exercise habits. They would treat the part of you that's bleeding. And that's what we do in our first conversation that's difficult with a teenager is we treat the most critical thing, and that's the heart. And we make sure that, that they know that they, they're safe, that they know that you and I are okay, you and God are okay, that all of us together, we're going to get through this. So that's the first conversation. Um, the second conversation is what I would call a trail. It's long. And it might be a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth conversation where then we begin to unpack, okay, theologically, what does this mean? Or what does scripture say? Or as your parent, what do I want you to know? Um, how do we handle this practically? There's time for all of those conversations down the trail. And I think as an adult, I feel a pressure in the very first moments to tell them absolutely everything I want them to know. And it's helpful just to remember, no, 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 this is the emergency room. I'm treating the heart. There will be plenty of time to have the practical conversations down the trail. That's so helpful because I think often the, the question for parents is just how to deal with that initial shock and we jump on it. We want to put everything in that moment. So I think sure. I'm gonna, I have smaller children and I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> That's really great. <laughs> um, you mentioned a few times there, if, if your child or teenager has the courage to talk to you or to someone else, what would you say to a parent who thinks that their child might be struggling with one of these issues, with something difficult, you feel like something's bothering them, something's up, um, but they haven't had the confidence to come to you. Do you have any advice for them? I would say the quickest way to shoot or to, let me try saying that again. Um, I would say that the quickest way to make a teenager be very quiet is to accuse them of something. And so we have to be very careful. They're, they're fragile in that way. We almost have to ask sneaky questions as opposed to saying, hi, are you struggling with thoughts of self-harm? But instead, we have to ask a little more careful questions, especially the younger they are. 
13, 14, 15 year olds are much more likely to shut down than 17, 18 or 19 year olds. Um, so careful questions getting to the same point might be, um, does anything worry you about the future? Um, what takes up the most space in your brain right now? If one of your friends was to say that they worry about you, what do you think they would worry about? And so sometimes helping them think about it through the lens of someone else can be really helpful as opposed to asking them direct questions. Now, if we think that a child is struggling with uh, thoughts of harming themselves and specifically thoughts of suicide, I would say don't let the question f or don't let the conversation end until you ask that because those are such dangerous thoughts that we can't just let those um, linger until another conversation. And so ending the conversation with, hey, this this might be a little strange to ask, and I feel a little strange asking it, but it's just so important. Do you, have you ever thought about harming yourself, or have you ever thought about uh, maybe even not being here anymore? And giving them the opportunity to voice that, um, because those are, those are some really scary conversations. I would also point to a resource for parents that I recommend all the time. I think it's really, really helpful, because there are some conversation guides there. Um, there are guides on what to say and what not to say in a lot of situations, and that resource is theparentqcue.org. So parentq.org has a lot of resources for parents of children of all ages about how to have conversations about anything from self-harm to divorce to um, sexual activity to all the, all the really difficult stuff that we'd like help talking about. Brilliant. And what about when we get it wrong, when we mess up? So you were just saying um, you've given some amazing advice there, and I hope we'll remember that. But uh, we're all human. We all get it wrong. What if your teenager comes to you and says something and you have a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction, your face does look shocked, or you try and shove lots of theology and advice um, all in one go? If you feel like you've got it a little bit wrong, um, what would you suggest to parents to to do to kind of take that forward? Well, I would say that teenagers learn how to be humans by watching us. So let's teach them to be good humans in that moment and model what it looks like to apologize and to say, you know, I really, I really messed that one up and I'd like to restart that conversation. Would it be okay if we started over? Would it be okay if I tried again? I feel terrible about the way that I reacted and I wish I'd said so many things differently. And so I'm wondering if you would give me a second chance. And typically teenagers are, um, they, they can be more terrible than we think in normal everyday moments, but they can also be more wonderful than we think in really difficult moments. And so they might surprise you with how gracious and forgiving they are if, if we're honest enough to just apologize and start over. Mm, that power of the apology, it's, it's massive, isn't it? Crystal, sure. thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Um, if people want to find out more about your books and resources, follow you on social media, uh, how do we do that? Sure thing. So um, they can for sure follow me on social media. On every platform, I'm at Crystal C. Chiang. Um, and of course, my last name is spelled weird, so I'll spell it for you. It's C-H-I-A-N-G. And I'm also at crystalcchang.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Crystal. Today's question is a common question, and yet we have uh, somebody else's answer to. Today's question is, 
well, essentially, do I make my kids go to church? But more specifically, what do I do if my teenager seems to be disliking church and disengaging from church and, and not wanting to go? Now, my answer to this question is the last episode uh, in the Parenting for Faith course. It's all about how to help your kids engage with church, including teenagers. So my answer is out there. But as I was talking to Josh Lees for the interview, uh, a youth pastor that I've worked with for many years, uh, he had a slightly different answer that I, I really thought was provoking. So uh, here is Josh Lees, uh, an experienced uh, youth pastor's answer to uh, how do we respond when our kids are struggling with church. I think there's some important questions you've got to ask. Why do they want to come to church is a really important question. And to have an honest discussion with them about that. It might be the things that they find really boring are things you find really boring. It might be more profound than that. It might be actually they have really serious questions about God and faith. And sometimes those questions aren't being answered. They're not being discussed. And I think making sure that we provide a place for those questions to be engaged with seriously is really important. I think sometimes young people don't want to go to church because they might not have friends for an age. And that's really valid. I think if we think about us as adults going to a church with no one our age, we might feel really uncomfortable about that too. Sometimes it might be trying to find um, a youth group or something like that, that our young people can join in with. And sometimes it's about encouraging them to press on that life in community is really hard. And if we're all honest, all of us struggle with church at different points and trying to support them in that and to see church as something that they are part of as well. They contribute to it and encouraging them in that. And I suppose that goes back to some of the risk taking as well, getting them to be honest with their youth leaders if they have them, um, people in their church and, and getting involved. You brought up a good point. Not every church has a youth pastor or even a youth program. Does that doom, if you don't have a youth program at church, does that inevitably mean your kid's going to walk away from church because there isn't a youth program? How, how do you as a parent cope with mm -hmm. the church that doesn't have a youth program? No, there were only two other kids in my church and they were my brother and sister. Um, and, you know, being real about that, that was really tough. Um, but... I think one of the things I'm really grateful for for my parents is they made space to take us to other youth clubs, to take us to um, other events that we could connect with, to talk about the services with us at home and to ask questions that were maybe more on our level if they weren't getting asked. And we found as well that even though there weren't any other kids, that some of the adults really started to look out for us and we really respected them and, and they felt more like family in the end. And I look back really fondly on those years. And so absolutely, if, you know, if, if people have kids in a church and they don't have any other friends for their own age, that doesn't doom them at all. It's harder and it's fine to be honest about that and it's fine to talk about that. But absolutely, that's not... A, that's not a barrier. And a question to ask your kid or teenager to start an interesting conversation. What do you think Jesus would have enjoyed most about being a teenager? He was one. What do you think he liked about it? 
have a great conversation. As I say, this has just been a little taster. So go to parentingforfaith.org forward slash topics forward slash teenagers for loads more. Bye bye. Thank you for downloading the Parenting for Faith podcast. A new episode will be released next week. And why not look at parentingforfaith.org to watch the free eight session course to get in touch or to find out about training and events near you.